Clyde Peeling, Rep the Land. Uh, my name is Elliot Peeling. My name is Catherine Allen, and I am the zoological manager. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Raw Safari Podcast. So, y'all, this week we are back at Reptiland um, to talk to Clyde again and to Elliot Peeling and also to Catherine again. Uh, you know, Clyde and Catherine were obviously on last week's episode. But, y'all, we are not talking about the zoo this time. You see, it turns out there's a whole other aspect of Reptiland, which is that um, they have traveling exhibits that go to zoos and aquariums and museums all around the country and even into Canada uh, to share the Reptiland experience at other facilities. As a matter of fact, uh, I've, I've seen one of these exhibits um, at the National Aquarium. You'll hear me talk about that more in the episode. But I have to admit, when I found out that these traveling exhibits were at the same cool little reptile zoo that I knew about from living in central Pennsylvania, my mind was blown. And uh, it became a goal to, to talk about it on the podcast. And so now that goal is being achieved. Uh, before we get to that, just a real couple quick reminders here. Make sure that you hit that subscribe button on whatever app you're listening on so you don't miss any episodes. Make sure that you are following along on Instagram. Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Raw Safari, and uh, on TikTok at Raw Safari Pod. And um, if you'd like to support the podcast, uh, you can do so for as little as $3 a month by going to patreon.com slash Raw Safari. All right, cool. So yeah, getting back to this traveling exhibits idea, there, there's just one other thing that I want to say about this in the intro, and you'll hear me talk about this a lot in the episode, but I can't stress this enough. As a touring musician, I have never felt like I had such a deep understanding of a subject that was being discussed. Um, it's just really cool. It, it made me feel like, hey, I, I know this one. And um, I think being a touring musician, I was able to bring kind of a unique perspective. And of course, because I have to make everything about me, I uh, end up telling some stories about my time on the road while uh, we go through the interview here. So I hope you all enjoy. And without further ado, uh, oh, I should probably actually, with further ado, much more ado, I need to explain to you that um, the way this worked out was as Clyde was leaving, I mentioned that we were also going to talk about the traveling exhibits. So he plopped back down and gave me a very quick, um, like five minutes on the history of where this came from. And then Elliot came in and we spoke about, uh, his role with the exhibits, which is really cool. And then I talked to Catherine again about what it's like being a keeper involved with these and also what her current role as the zoological manager means with these traveling exhibits. There's a lot of really cool stuff, but yeah, you're going to hear like three mini interviews or as we like to call them on this podcast interviews so um okay now without further ado let's get to the interviews
All right. So why don't you tell me where the idea of these traveling exhibits came from? Like, how did you come up with this idea? Well, for years, we did uh, small traveling exhibits to primarily sports and travel shows, mostly through the Midwest. But they were they were wall exhibits um, and they were tough, tough exhibits because you're you're doing them in the, the coldest months of the year, trying to travel from one city to the other. And anyway, uh, when my sons came into the business in, uh, I guess, the 80s, um, one of them had visited uh, a friend in Baltimore and came back and said, you know, uh, Museums bring in traveling exhibitions of one theme or another, and maybe we ought to take a look at that industry and see if we could do traveling exhibits on a large scale using uh, live reptiles, amphibians, etc. So uh, Elliot, my youngest son, uh, built a model of what we thought uh, this first traveling exhibition should look like. And we took pictures of the model and um, we sent out a brochure and we got a phone call from uh, a woman who worked in a museum in New Jersey. And she said, uh, this uh, picture looks like it's a model. <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's the end of that. <laughs> and I said, yeah, you're right. It's a model, but we're in the process of building the actual exhibit. <laughs> so she came to visit and she was convinced we could do it. And our first booking was at Liberty Science Center in, uh, in New Jersey. And uh, from there it just took off. Nice. Um, That's very cool. And since then we, we built, uh, uh, I think a total of seven of our own exhibits. We've also built a couple of traveling exhibitions for the American Museum of Natural History in New York. And uh, so we've, we're have we all over the United States and Canada with these exhibits at one time or another. Nice. And is that a, um, a separate team from the team at the facility or do you all just do it all? We uh, No, we rotate keepers. Okay. So they'll go out with a traveling exhibition uh, for a couple of months, and then they'll come back and we'll send another keeper out. So as as a result, we have a, a fairly large stable of keepers, uh, maybe more than we'd need by one or two, but uh, it's worked out pretty well. That's actually really cool, and that's a really cool – I mean, I know so many keepers that I talk to – are desperate to get to other facilities just to see how things work. And like when they're on vacation, they'll go to a zoo and try and get behind the scenes just to learn yeah. and just to make connections. So to actually be sending them out to do that is, is really awesome. Yeah. Um, some of them uh, over the years, I've, I've found they're, they're, they love going to a large city and, and taking advantage of all the cultural things available and others don't like it and they go to the museum they take care of the animals and back to their apartment uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah being on the road a long period of time is not always uh, for everybody 
I, I am aware as, as a person who <laughs> yeah, spends right. all their time on yeah, the road. Yeah, yeah I am. I'm the novelty aware. wears off. It, it definitely can at times. Yeah. Um, one of my tours was, was 11 months straight and that was wow. a lot of months. Um, yeah. I enjoyed it tremendously, but I was, I was very much ready to not do that again at the end. So yeah. Okay. Very cool. Well, thanks for that history. I appreciate okay. it. Awesome. So uh, tell me who you are and, and what you do with these traveling exhibits. Uh, my name is Elliot Peeling, and uh, I uh, designed and built all of the exhibits. Uh, well, uh, all but one. Uh, we have one uh, called Spiders Alive we uh, bought from the American Museum of Natural History in New York. And um, they designed that exhibit to uh, just set up at their own facility, so it wasn't designed really well for travel. Uh, that one I did some retrofitting so it could travel efficiently. Nice. Okay. Very cool. And um, so tell me what it is like when you decide to put together an exhibit. Like where does the idea come from? And then, you know, obviously they're traveling to different facilities. So how do you account for that when you're designing these? Um, well, the, the best answer for that is the, the where we're located here uh, with our zoo is Allenwood, Pennsylvania, which is rural Pennsylvania, probably the worst place you could think of for a tourist attraction. <laughs> yeah. So um, traveling exhibit uh, exhibits were born out of the fact that we wanted to show what we can do here to bigger audiences and bigger markets. Um, so uh, as far as how you design them to travel and everything, there's a lot of uh, – uh, limitations there and definitely challenges because uh, you you have to – it's hard enough to design an exhibit for an animal that's going to be in a stationary spot. Right, right. But now you got to have something that can break down every couple months and fit into a tractor trailer and ship across the country. So you're, you're limited in weight uh, and dimensions of what will fit through a door uh, height and width-wise. That makes sense. And for the exhibits that use, you know, like um, aquariums and stuff or terrariums, whatever, um, do y'all provide those or does the facility have to provide those? Um, I'm coming at this from – so I'm a touring musician. And Mm -hmm. so like, you know, one of my shows carries my drums around. But sometimes I just show up at places and have to adapt what I do to the drums that they have. So that's kind of where I'm coming at from Mm -hmm. this, this question. Um, we, we are sort of a turnkey service. Wow. We, we provide everything. Wow. Um, all you got to do is have a large empty gal- gallery space. And when I say large, these things are quite sizable. Um, we need a minimum of 3000 square feet for our smallest exhibit and preferably five to 7,000 is a more comfortable fit for most of them. Um, so, Basically, the museum just has to provide a secure indoor climate-controlled gallery, and uh, we can pretty much do the rest. And and we actually supply a keeper uh, to go out and care for uh, the animals on many of the exhibits. There are there are two exhibits that um, will make an exception for that. One is the spider exhibit. Um, we offer a training service where we'll train their staff to care for them. Uh, we'll also provide a keeper if they, if they want that service. Um, and our scoop on poop exhibit, which is a <laughs> children's exhibit about animal feces, uh, that exhibit, um, there's really no need for a keeper because there's only three animals. There's a box turtle, cockroaches, and field mice. 
fair. Pr- pretty easy to take care of. Fair, fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's really cool. How do you come up with these ideas for, you know, frogs, a chorus of colors or scoop and poop or, you know, whatever? Lots of uh, just uh, brainstorming um, meetings and idea sessions. Um, a lot of them evolve over years and years of talking about it. Um, our first one is a general reptile exhibit called Reptiles, the Beautiful and the Deadly. And that is just basically what we have in our own reptile house here. And we took that concept and packaged it for a road show. Um, Frogs was our second exhibit. And I don't, I don't know the exact origin of that one. Uh, we had a guy on staff at that time who was very knowledgeable about amphibians. And I think we just started kicking around the concept of a frog exhibit. Um, so after a couple of years after our, our first uh, reptile exhibit, we launched that one. And that's been our most successful exhibit actually to date. Frogs is incredible. I um, I remember when it was at the National Aquarium, and I went and visited that exhibit so many times. Um, it was it's just stunningly beautiful. Mm-hmm. I think the signage is great. I think the overall messaging is is really. I mean, it's just on point. It's mm-hmm. just really cool. Um, yeah, I'm not surprised that that is. Uh, as successful as it is, I was surprised to find out that it came from here. The mm, idea that, yeah. um, you know, I grew up in the Harrisburg area. Mm. Uh, and so the idea that this, this little zoo that was mostly reptiles is, you know, not only a great facility that is AZA accredited and everything, but also sends out these incredible exhibits kind of blew my mind, honestly. Yeah. Unfortunately, we don't have a space big enough to do display our own exhibits. So we, we ran a warehouse up the road and unfortunately when they're not rented, they just sit there. Uh, that's one of the things we'd like to do here is put in a big gallery so we can rotate our own stuff. Oh, that's a really cool idea. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. I dig that. So what happens with the, the animals for the exhibits then when they're not, um, out on the road? Well, I'm Catherine could probably tell you uh, better than I could, but, uh, they all come back here and, uh, the whole upstairs second floor of our reptile house is, was pretty much designed and built just for a traveling exhibit, just for backup specimens. So some of those are used at the zoo too, but the majority of them are uh, specimens that we can send out for uh, these exhibits. That's so cool. Uh, can you tell me any just kind of weird things that you've encountered as you've tried to put these together and like stuff that you either didn't account for or luckily someone told you you had to account for or just anything like that? Nothing really is coming to mind. I'm sure if I give me enough time, I'd think of some. But I, I know there are, there are times when people forget forget to tell you that they don't have a loading dock, for instance. Oh, good. And you know that's a piece of information that's pretty important. So I, there's been a couple times when at the last minute you're scrambling to get a forklift or something. Um, Oh, I know one. We we did a Geico gecko exhibit that traveled. Uh, that ah. one does not travel anymore, but that traveled for uh, I think three or five years all across the country. And I do remember one time I arrived at the Denver Aquarium and they had not paid any attention to the measurements of how to get this thing in. And the only way we could figure out to get that exhibit in was to get a crane and hoist it up <laughs> into the second floor of the building and no. then push it in. Yeah. So they did that. Um, they quickly commissioned a crane and uh, spent quite a bit of extra money. That's amazing. Do you know this is this is again coming from my music background, but do you know the Van Halen Brown M M&M story? 
No. This is one of my favorite stories. So there is a thing that is known in pop culture that Van Halen were such divas that they insisted that in their dressing room they would have a um, container of M&Ms with no brown M&Ms in it. And this is like legendary. These people were, you know, jerk rock stars that were, right? No, it was actually the crew that came up with that idea. And when they would get to load in, the first thing they would do is go to the dressing rooms and look. If there were no M&Ms, they were going to tear apart every single part of the preparation stuff that was in, you know, the paperwork and everything. Because if there were no M&Ms, that meant that they paid no attention. If there were M&Ms, but there were brown M&Ms, they still needed to be really careful. They could probably trust the basic idea, but you still needed to make sure because they hadn't double-checked the paperwork. And if there were no brown M&Ms, yeah, this is going to be fine. We'll just load in on top of what they did. And I think that's kind of brilliant. Yeah, you know? maybe we should employ that. <laughs> Man, these, these Reptiland people really hate brown M&Ms, yeah. those divas, you know. But I, I, I get that kind of thing. I mean, doing this, it's actually funny, um, you know, talking about traveling and, and we're talking about touring. Mm-hmm. We're talking about exactly what I do for a living, but I never never really thought of it from a an animal and exhibit perspective. Um, but it, it's funny how much there is in common with that. Even the loading dock thing. I have literally pulled up to shows and they've been like, we don't know if we're going to have a set tonight. They don't have a loading dock. They forgot to tell us that. Uh, we're yeah. trying to figure it out. I'm like, well, all right. <laughs> yeah. It can uh, create a lot of uh, panic. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. So how much um, do you have to consider sending like backup, um, you know, it, both animals and like exhibits and stuff, you know? Um, typically we don't send backup exhibits um, with like with our spider exhibit. Catherine could tell you, we, we do send some backup animals because some of those are short lived. Um, we certainly don't uh, have a full set of backup animals because some of the tarantulas are hardy and they live a long time and they're hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Um but um, the only time I could think of we do, did send a backup display is in Canada right now. Uh, we have our frog exhibits there, and they have a, an old hardwood floor. And if any of those tanks leak, um, their director expressed that she's a little nervous about doing damage to the floor. So if one springs a leak, I sent two extras we can swap them out with. But uh, typically we don't do that. Cool. Typically, you're on a cement floor or a carpet. And nobody really cares about it. Right. That makes sense. That's so funny. It's got to be really interesting as you're uh, dealing with the the facilities that are are bringing the exhibits in. Um, just to think about the unique stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like, that's really interesting. Very cool. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to say about these exhibits? Um, only I'll, I'll just mention that we have seven of them. Uh, we have the reptile exhibit I mentioned. That was our first one. Um, then we built two frog exhibits. And it's funny you mentioned the Baltimore Aquarium. Uh, the reason we have two is because uh, the first one was so popular. And then Baltimore, they wanted to lease that for five years. So we had other customers that didn't want to wait five years. Uh, so we quickly built another version of that. So we have two frog exhibits. And then um, – our next exhibit was the scoop on poop I mentioned. <laughs> and uh, then we built a gecko exhibit, which is absolutely beautiful, but unfortunately is not uh, extremely popular for some reason. It, it does well uh, every venue it goes to, uh, but um, customers don't uh, think of geckos as a, a draw a draw for them. So unfortunately, it doesn't book very often. Um, <clears throat> but then we, uh, after geckos, we 
built crocodilians, and then we um, just got into spiders here recently. So nice, very. So we, cool. we have uh, uh, available slots if anybody's interested. Nice, and I just I'm just saying if y'all are listening to this and you're at a facility that can bring in an exhibit, yo geckos are awesome. And like I haven't seen this exhibit, but even just today here, as soon as we got to the gecko exhibit, she lost me. I was gone. She was talking and I was turning corners and I realized at some point I was being rude, but I was obsessed. They are incredible creatures. Yeah. Like, absolutely. Ah, oh, that's so cool. Cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me a little sure, bit here. Thank Appreciate you. it. Hi, welcome back. Uh, it's been so long since we last spoke. Uh, mm-hmm. We're recording these two interviews at the <clears throat> same time. Um, but let's remind the guests who you are. So I am Catherine Allen. I am the zoological manager of Clyde Peeling's Reptiland. Yeah. And today we're focused all about the uh, traveling exhibits mm-hmm. that are, are centered here. Um, and you are heavily involved in these as well. So um, what what do you do with them? Um Well, my role now is different from when I was a zookeeper. So now when we have a traveling exhibit booked, it is my responsibility to get those animals from our facility to wherever they're going. So making sure all their paperwork is in line, they have, if needed, they're basically their passports to get across international (laughs) borders, Um, coordinating with Elliot and Clyde as to what animals are we are we sending on exhibit? Are the graphics all correct? Do we have the correct animals? Getting all that stuff ready to go, scheduling the keepers to be there. And then um, often I bring the animals to the exhibit. So the transportation, setting it up, teaching the keeper how to do the exhibit. So that's my role now. And then if there's any issues with the animals, I am on call 24-7 for my keeper out there um, just in case something goes wrong or something happens to an animal or them like that's my role now <laughs> right right mm-hmm. that makes sense and we'll we'll, we'll um i want to dive into that more but you know to to tease everybody you you were a keeper um yeah. before getting into this management position and you would travel with exhibits so we are going to talk about mm-hmm. that um i just find that fascinating but let's start off with this paperwork so i know how exciting is <laughs> yeah, paperwork, paperwork. <laughs> but i actually feel like this has to be pe- pretty interesting like you're talking it, it about is. like reptile passports and like yeah. right now y'all have an exhibit um up in Canada spiders right no it's no. frogs frogs, frogs yeah, yes. i knew it was one of that's them that's okay um and so uh, how do you get frogs to canada oh so it's an adventure that's for sure um so our closest port um is actually up through buffalo niagara falls area yeah okay yeah but that's not a us fish and wildlife oh, designated no. port So the first thing we had to do was get a special exception permit to allow us to bring our animals through that port. So I work with U.S. Fish and Wildlife to get that. Then we need an import-export permit for just the facility in general. And this is just for the animals. The truck with the exhibit goes by itself. That's a whole (laughs) other mountain of of paperwork. Um, So then everything has to be listed through U.S. Fish and Wildlife. You declare it. We also sent CITES-listed species, so getting permits for our poison dart frogs, which are CITES Appendix 2, scheduling an inspection with them on the American side. So we did all that, and then 
we had to cross into Canada. So having to know what international laws apply to these animals going into a certain province of Canada, it was a ton of calling people and explaining to people who I am and (laughs) why there's going to be 72 frogs coming across the border that are not pets, but not going to another zoo. And it it was a lot, Um, but we got it and they're in Canada. So yeah, it was, it was an adventure. So um, also it's not like they're riding shotgun in the van either. So (laughs) We have to package them individually. So they're all in individual Tupperware containers and they're all labeled with their Latin names, common names, because you have to be inspected, right? So we go to the border, they open the containers, make sure everything is what I say it is. uh, And then they're in a giant cooler. But we also had to be in Buffalo, Niagara area in the middle of January. So we were, (laughs) we were worried about a snowstorm. So I went up the day before. So I had to smuggle an entire cooler of frogs into my hotel room, (laughs) Um, which is just a normal day if you're a zookeeper, because it's not like they can sit out in the van. So yeah. yeah, So that's how we, we got them across the border. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay. And this is all stuff that you did not know how to do. You just had to figure out. Well, my mentor, um, the previous zoological manager did leave me like instructions for how to do things, but so much changes, right? especially post COVID it's okay. Wait, how are we doing things now? So it, it was a lot of learning on the fly and talking to people and, um, working with other facilities and the, uh, there's the zoological registrars association, ZRA. They were super helpful. Heather at the Pittsburgh zoo there. She used to work here. She's their registrar. Phenomenal. Help me out. Um, but every single exhibit, depending on where it goes, has different permitting that's necessary per state and per animal. So Oof. it's, it's an adventure in, um, paperwork and working with state and federal government agencies. That's for sure. <laughs> The boring part of the job. (laughs) Yeah, but also kind of fascinating from, you know, you think about these exhibits just being somewhere. And it's like, you know, I remember when they opened Frogs in Baltimore and I was just like really excited to go see it. And uh, I didn't know any of that was happening. Mm -hmm. It was just cool to go see frogs, you know? Yeah, nobody thinks like, oh, yeah, you need a health certificate signed by a vet to get these animals across borders or our spiders exhibit in Florida has multiple permits through the Florida department of agriculture. And that was a whole new adventure. I had never worked with them before. They were fantastic. We got everything, but it was like, Oh, department of ag. Okay. We're going to work with them now. Not Florida fish and wildlife. Okay. (laughs) Who controlled what animals and different levels Venomous snakes are going to have far more usually strict permitting requirements than something like a turtle or tortoise. So it's always something, always learning. (laughs) Wow. That's really cool. That's really interesting. Um, so yeah, let's, let's talk about some of the, uh, the animals that, that y'all exhibit on these. Cause there are a couple of different, um, ones and we, we already, uh, listed them, <laughs> but, um, like, yeah, tell me about some of the frogs that y'all have on exhibit and, and how you take care of them. Yeah. So up in Canada right now, we have 72 frogs and tadpoles. So we have a cool exhibit with American bullfrog tadpoles on it. So there's 20 of those. So 52 frogs, 20 tadpoles are on the exhibit. It is a variety of different species. So poison dart frogs, always popular. People love them. But we also have African bullfrog named Jabba. It's 
smooth-sided toads, ornate horn frogs or uh, Pac-Man frogs, what they're called, Amazon milk frogs, cane toads. It's a lot. Um, now, every single day, there, there's a zookeeper up there who is fantastic. This is her first traveling exhibit, so it's, it's been an adventure for her, I'm sure. <laughs> um, the keeper gets there before the institution opens to the public, usually. And every single day, they clean every single exhibit, feed the frogs that need to be fed, do water qualities, basically be a zookeeper for a couple hours. And then they're free. They're, they get to go back to their apartment or they can explore the city, visit other facilities. Um, but the keeper that is there is on call for that exhibit 24-7. So if the institution has an issue, a light blew out, you get a phone call to go back to that facility and fix whatever is wrong. But that's every day um, for a couple months. So usually you're there six to eight weeks and then you switch out with another zookeeper. And on Sunday, that's Tiffany will be heading up. She'll take over. And then our other zookeeper, Rebecca, gets to come home and get a couple of days off. <laughs> nice. Nice. Very cool. And tell me about your time when you were a keeper and you were doing that stuff. Tell me, like, where did you go? Oh, I went all over the place. So I did eight traveling exhibits before being promoted. Uh, my very first exhibit was in Salt Lake City. I did geckos out there. Nice. It was Awesome. I had never been to Salt Lake City before. What a weird, unique little place of its own, <laughs> yeah, right? I it mean, was, it's so, mm-hmm. yeah, there's nowhere like it. No, and and when we go, generally we stay very close to where the exhibit is located. So I was living in downtown Salt Lake City with a rental car and, you know, work two, three hours a day and then could go and explore the city go for a hike, go see the mountains, things like that. So where I was it, it exhibited at, uh, in Salt Lake? Do you remember? Oh, it was the museum or it was part of their college there. Okay. I'd have to look it up. That's okay. what it was. I remember driving to it every day, of course, but now I can't remember the name. Right. So Brigham Young or, or no, somewhere else? Or, okay. I don't remember. I don't okay. Whatever. Terrible memory. <laughs> you're, you're irrelevant. I'm old. I was just curious. <laughs> um, um, yeah, but yeah, that's so, really cool. So that was my first exhibit. Okay. And then um, that was six months after being hired. I, yeah, my boss, Jeff, had come and asked me like a couple months after being hired. He was like, what do you think of Salt Lake City? And I was like, I don't know. I've never been. He's like, well, you're going to go. And I was like, oh, okay. So then they shipped me off for months. Um, so I then came back and we had an exhibit going to Ottawa. It was our reptiles exhibit, which has venom on it. You cannot travel that exhibit unless you're venom certified. We had staff who really didn't want to go. So they decided to certify me in venom so I could then go to <laughs> Ottawa to do the exhibit. Um which was great. It was fine. You love Venom, though. I do. I did. I was not um, a big Venom person when I first started. Fair. I, I gravitated towards the geckos and the not-so-dangerous things, but that's changed a lot. <laughs> um, so I opened that exhibit, came home, and then went and closed it. So again, I lived in downtown Ottawa for two months each time. So a total of four months. That was at the Ottawa, Ottawa Museum of Natural History. And it was great. I did keeper chats. Uh, I got to visit Parliament up there. Nice. Um, yeah, it was super cool. Super cool experience. Uh, then I, what was the next exhibit I did? Um, Milwaukee. Oh, I did frogs in Milwaukee. Nice. So, um, I opened that exhibit. Uh, it was, it was great. I love Milwaukee. I'm from the UP, so it's not super far from home for me. Um, my parents come and visit. 
I did that one. Then I did the uh, Royal Botanical Gardens, which is where our frogs exhibit is now. I did frogs up there then. Uh, and then I did Pittsburgh. Yeah, I was at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History for the reptiles exhibit there. And then I did a couple down in Gainesville at the Florida Museum of Natural History. We had our frogs exhibit down there and our crocs exhibit. So I did um, one shift of each of those. And it's Florida. It's gorgeous. So oh, I loved it. Yeah. 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 We get to live on, on campus, the University of Florida campus. Nice. A quick walk to and from the museum. And then I was supposed to go to Bozeman, Montana. Um, we had our exhibit at the Museum of the Rockies. It opened in January of 2020, and I was slated to travel out in March of 2020. But, you yeah. know, the world kind of shut down, so I ended up not traveling. And I haven't traveled since on an exhibit, so I just go set them up, help tear them down, things like that. Gotcha. But, yeah, that was I was supposed to go to Montana. It was a bummer I didn't get to go. That is an awesome <laughs> facility and an awesome, awesome town. Yeah, you would have loved yeah, it. I yeah, I probably would have, but that's okay. There was a pandemic going on. There was. So I still technically here. is, but, you know, True. We're, we're over it, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, okay, so that's really, that's a lot. That's it's really a lot, yeah. Cool. Um, do you find that there are staff here that like doing that and then staff that don't like doing it? or um, yeah. So... A lot of our staff hasn't traveled because COVID hit and our exhibits weren't being booked. Right. You know, museums were shut down for so long. How are you going to get an exhibit that nobody's going to see? So uh, myself and Tiffany have done the most traveling exhibits, and we both absolutely love it. But traveling isn't easy if you're if you have family. You can't just up and leave for two months. And be like, see ya, kids, take care of yourself. So some of my staff just think they're not going to ever be able to travel because you have responsibilities. Um, So far, everyone really likes it. You're dropped in the middle of a city for two months and you can enjoy yourself. And yes, your responsibility is the animals and the exhibit, but you're somewhere new, different culture. You can see the museums, the exhibits. Mm -hmm. It's I absolutely loved it. It was a blast. And that was a huge part of why I accepted the position when I was offered it as a keeper. Because it right. was I really wanted to travel and, and do that. And yeah, it's such a great experience. Nice. That's really cool. Touring, I mean, I'm very passionate about touring. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly what we said. You know, most of the time when I'm in a, a town, my busy work days are when I have two shows in a day. And with the shows that I tour, that's it's, it's about four hours of work. Those are my busy days. Mm-hmm. My my normal days, I work to sometimes going a little early and play maybe two and a half hours, you know. And, yeah. then, and then, yeah, you just have all this time to kill and learn about new places and meet new people. And it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. I've also seen it break a lot of people, um, you know, which is, which is why I asked. I mean, I remember, um, I know I mentioned, uh, earlier that I, I was on one tour that was 11 months and that was a lot. Um, but, uh, I remember towards the end of that tour, um, a bunch of people on the bus were complaining and just, you know, kind of venting. And I was like, Oh, it's, it's fine. And the one dude just turned and was like, yeah, John, we get it. You are meant for the road. <laughs> Not everyone is meant yeah. for the road. And I was like, Oh, but I'm having fun. <laughs> like, even though this is long, I'm having fun. So I can, I can understand yeah. both sides of it. And we, we don't let them travel the entire exhibit. Right. So if it's booked for six months, you don't have one keeper do it. It's just too much. Right. And then we, 
if we have multiple exhibits, a keeper can travel for a shift, but then they come back and we don't send them out for another two to three months. It's just, it's too much to ask of somebody to constantly be on the go. I think the longest we ever had a keeper out was Tiffany. Her very first exhibit she did at the Peggy Notabart Museum in Chicago. She did it open to close and it was like 13 or 14 weeks. So it was just, it was too short of a time frame to really send two, right. but kind of long for one. And, and she was just like, you know what? I'll do it. It's fine. Also, it's Chicago. like In winter, though. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's a little worse. <laughs> yeah. That's a little worse. But yeah. that's that's the longest we've really had a keeper out. And But she's Tiff and loves frogs. So she she survived and she's still here. So. No, yeah, it's good. And uh, yeah, that's, that's very cool. So I noticed that you, uh, you, you were saying um, most of these places are museums. Mm-hmm. And I guess, you know, my experience uh, with with these with the the first time I saw these exhibits was at the uh, the National Aquarium. So I kind of assumed that these would be more things that that go to other zoos and stuff. But and I mean I know that y'all would be open to that. Um, but does it, it's mostly like museums and places that are trying to bring in like maybe a different educational angle. Yeah, it's it's something different. So a museum will usually set it up in a gallery and then this is our special exhibit for this time frame. So you can upcharge and right. they'll charge like, Oh, it's an extra so-and-so fee to go see this exhibit or they use it to promo. Hey, we have this come and see it. Since museums are kind of static, yeah. you got to bring stuff in to br- keep visitors coming back. So it tends to be that I have traveled to more museums than zoos. I've never done an exhibit at a zoo. It's always been some sort of museum that I've gone to. Interesting. That's cool. That also explains the sending a keeper thing. Yeah. Well, and also it's, it's difficult to teach somebody how to be a zookeeper and then leave them alone. We don't send our new staff. We send people, they've been here. They, they know what they're doing. They're very competent. They've been trained. Not everyone can go in and just handle a gaboon viper or feed it or our spitting cobra. You know, we travel that. So it's specialized staff who have that knowledge and experience working with these animals. And most, most people in general don't know how to handle a reticulated python. So you can't just send anybody out yeah, <laughs> to, no, to that's, do that. that. That's fair. That's yeah. fair. Uh, so what, uh, what happens when, when animals aren't on exhibit, you just shove them in boxes and throw them in a warehouse. <laughs> the warehouse. That's yeah. where the exhibits go. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> but, but so how, like, what's that like? Is there just, um, you know, still full husbandry for them and yes. you keep a full collection for everything. And how does that work? Yeah. So our zoo, if you visit is, looks like one floor. So you make a loop. That's all the exhibit gallery. That building has a second floor. So like, like Elliot had said, it's designed for all of our off exhibit collection animals. There's two rooms. We have an amphibian room, which is kept cooler since it's temperature controlled Then our reptile room. That's where everybody goes. So the animals are off exhibit. We take care of them just like we would any other animal, full husbandry, enrichment, trainings, things like that. Um, Some of the animals that travel are part of our ambassador collection. So our big Western diamondback, he would travel, but I also take him to schools and programs and lectures. So they, they serve multiple purposes and we get to show them off more often then. Right, right. 
That's really cool. And do you notice any, like, are there any of the animals that you've traveled that have, like, different behaviors when they're they're on the road or anything? I uh, mean, I know that musicians do. So. Our rhinoceros iguana. Oh, <laughs> his, his name is Pabst. He is a he's in his mid twenties and he just can get so spunky when he's traveling and <laughs> he does not like people banging on his glass. That's for sure. He will head bob at them and even mouth open rush at the glass. If wow. people are bothering him, he's a diva. He's do not disturb him. Um, I mean, to be fair, good for him. Like yeah. <laughs> I get so mad when I see people tapping on glass. So yeah. It's a thing, but yeah. Yeah. He has a big attitude. Um, but he, when he is traveling, like I had him at Carnegie and you spoil him a little bit. So I would just open the doors from behind the scenes. They're, they're locked little islands. So you have access to the exhibits, but the animals can't get out of the little area that you're in. I would just let him cruise around with me so he could be my little assistant for the day. <laughs> so he got very used to that. Um, just some more contact. You, they get a lot more one-on-one attention because you're only having a couple animals. Right. So you have one Gila monster that you get to spoil relentlessly and, and talk about. Uh, but in general, like being on exhibit for them is just part of their normal life. They're, right. they're so used to it. Our Western diamondback, he was in his twenties. I mean, he had traveled since like 2007. Yeah. It was a normal daily thing for him to just, all right, I'm on exhibit. Great. Cool. That's so cool. I really like that. Um, is there anything else you want to tell me about what it's like being out on the road or about these exhibits or anything? Um, I don't know. It's always an adventure. That's that's for sure. Um, yep. <laughs> it, this it's so weird to me having this conversation like and relating so well. Yeah. Um, it's just it's very strange actually. Yeah, <laughs> you and, and you never know what's going to happen. You can have, you know, huge school groups and you can be asked to do media. So I've done TV events and things like that. Um, you'll have writers, people want to write blogs about it. Mm -hmm. Um, and each exhibit venue is different. So some exhibits we would do, uh, meet the keepers. And I, I love education and talking to people and, and teaching about the animals. So I would always be down for any type of education, the, a place wants me to do. I was always for it. Some institutions have their own education team. So they'd be like, no, we got it. We're good. Uh, but yeah, it, you never know what's going to happen. And that's part of the reason why I love it. It's, it's chaos at all times. It's kind of, <laughs> it's a good way to describe like in general, just like zookeeping, I think. Yeah. You're <laughs> Organized chaos. Yeah. That sounds correct. That sounds correct. Awesome. Cool. Um, well, thank you again so much yeah, for taking the time to do this. It's very cool. All right. So there you have it, folks. And I know what you're thinking right now. You come to this podcast for all kinds of cool information about zoos and aquariums and conservation, but you also come for one very specific thing. And you know what? Because I recorded these at the same time, I did not get a second poop story. Poop story. In time. And that's okay, because it turns out that one of my favorite things to do with patron bonus audio, which is the audio that anyone who's a patron of the Rasafari podcast can get from many of my interviews, is to collect extra poop stories. Poop story. So, because I know you need your earworm, here is a bonus one from my good buddy Shane Gorbett, who was on a few episodes ago. And uh, also just a friendly reminder that if you become a patron of the Rossafari podcast, you can get stuff like this all the time by going to patreon.com slash Rossafari. 
All right, hit it, me. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossifari Poop Story. I used to um, go on programs to schools with Animal Encounters Village. Uh, one time we were in West Virginia and uh, we had African black-footed penguins and they were trained to follow us around and walk. Well, unbeknownst to us, while the penguin Minnow was walking around, she kind of, you know, must have bent over and had projectile poop. And um, penguin poop is very liquidy. Yes, yes. Very white and apparently went straight into a girl's mouth. Oh, no. A girl's? Not even yes. you. Oh. Yes. A student. Oh, no. Like, she's probably oh, fourth no. or fifth grade. <laughs> oh, no. You know, in her mouth. Like, she gets cleaned up. We're mortified afterwards like we tell the teacher we're like hey stick around we'll do something special for this student because that had to have been traumatic and her nickname is now like penguin poop for the rest of her life so yeah yeah. maybe because what happened was is they afterwards all the other students leave they come up and we're like we're really sorry like blah blah (laughs) and the little girl just goes it's okay i live on a farm i've had worse in my mouth before And that was awesome. So afterwards, we uh, brought Minnow out, let her get a picture with Minnow. So she did, was the only one in the school to get a picture with the penguin. But. And then she got to poop in the penguin's and, mouth because yeah. that's only fair. No, I kid. I kid. <laughs> no comment on that one, except for the fact that it did not happen. Right. No, but no Yeah, no. that was, uh, but that was, uh, one, it was very mortifying. Like, you know, it could have gone a lot of different ways, but I'm glad that we had a, an understanding student. That's amazing. All right. Very cool. Thank you so much. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, Quite the fun little episode. It was so cool to relate the idea of touring like I do to zooing like I also do, but in a different way. And I just really dug that. So uh, yeah, I'm really grateful to everyone at Reptiland for being just awesome and wonderful and taking great care of me. Uh, Thank you all uh, for listening and being here. It does mean a lot. And um, literally, I was just going to go right from that last story to uh, the credits because, you know, we've covered a lot here. But then I realized that if I did that, I wouldn't be able to remind y'all that the word credits backwards is Stiderk. So I literally put in this little section just so I can say, remember, y'all, the word credits backwards is Stiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Rossi. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.